definitely dealt with racism on so many different levels and so many different occurrences. We shouldn't have to live in fear. Our children shouldn't have to live in fear. To see an officer places me on the neck of a person and to hear that person cry out that they can't breathe, it, it's, it's absolutely insane. A dozen voices from police, community leaders, young protesters, and lawmakers, various perspectives about a raw issue gripping our nation. If we don't have George Floyd die on camera, we don't have protests across the country. In Cincinnati, like the rest of the country, we've seen everything from peaceful protests to vandalism and violence. The past several days have also fueled questions about change in Cincinnati since the riots of 2001. We are not where we need to be. We're also not where we were. We are united. We are one. And these are our demands. From WLWT, this is Let's Talk Cincy, presented by Western and Southern Financial Group. Put our financial strength behind you. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. The words of ML King are in many ways the anthem of the protests we've been seeing across the nation after the death of George Floyd. Hello everyone, I'm Curtis Fuller. And I'm Alexis Rogers. Here in Cincinnati, multiple protests reached the thousands. Many young minds are behind the movement we see here. What better way to learn about their demands than to sit down with some of them and some of those voices behind them and talk? Everyone has a different history and different experience when it comes to protesting. Some people, this is their first time. Others, they're pros at it. Uh, who here has protested before? Raise your hand. Okay. And who here was their first time? Um, I'm fairly new. Glad to have you. How did it feel, Jose, for this to be your first time? Um, for me personally, um, for me it kind of was like a feeling to where like enough is enough. And um, ever since ever since like I moved here to Ohio, moved to the Midwest, like um, it's I've like dealt with racism on so many different levels and so many different occurrences. I understand that. Now, Alani, you've done this before. Um, yes, I um, actually. Uh, organized the climate march back in March of last year so I have a little bit of experience but really like this isn't my movement I am not a black person I have not faced the injustices that most citizens in this country have but I have a voice I have a loud voice and I'm gonna use it to help my citizens because I care and and I think that's what our main focus is here, is just trying to uplift black voices because they have been ignored and silenced for so long. So let's go through the demands. Yeah, absolutely. For the five major demands of the American people right now, the first one is create an independent inspector body to investigate police misconduct. The second demand is create a requirement for states to establish board certification with minimum education and training requirements. We want to refocus police resources on training, de-escalation, and community building. We want to adopt the absolute uh, necessity doctrine for lethal force and we want to codify into law the requirement for police to have positive control over the evidence chain of custody. We need to see documented changes happen but I'm even more interested in ending white supremacy as a total construction like completely eradicating it from the inside out from the mindset so um, it's going to take a lot more demands, and I think this movement is a lot longer than we expect. You know, hearing that, a lot of people would say, man, it's 2020, are we still having this conversation? Jose, 
when we talk a little bit more about accountability, where do you think that conversation lies within the conversation of these protests and how people were treated and where we go from here? I personally, like, I feel like, uh, I feel like our police force in the city kind of has like a don't ask, don't tell type of policy. And um, we kind of talked about that bullet point as well, where um, personally I feel like the city needs to like implement some form of like an independent inspector, maybe the people can vote on, um, to kind of just be able to like look into that accountability. Because there's like a lot of things that happen like behind the scenes. Nature, let's have a conversation about your um, your experience over the course of, of the last few days. How was it out there being able to protest as well as what was your experience as curfew came and just different changes came in the city? As far as curfew, I honest, it's a violation of my First Amendment right. It's, just, it's not okay. Um, I've seen people arrested. I've seen people who are tear gassed and rubber bullets are being shot at them. Um, I've seen children who are maced. I as one who has been arrested at 9.02. What was your experience like once you were arrested? Once I was arrested, I was given, my group and I, we were given seven different commands to either stop, disperse, retreat, turn around, stop, you're under arrest, stop, disperse, go back to your cars. Um, so that was my experience. Um, luckily, none of us were hurt physically. Um, getting into processing at the Justice Center two hours outside. We were one of the first, very first group Sunday night to be arrested. Um, two hours outside, I suffered a swollen ankle. I was not given medical attention. I watched someone seize in front of me. She was not given medical attention. Um, we were not able to use the bathroom. Once we got there, we were I mean, given our phone calls and then we were all segregated into ourselves. Um, so you had um, uh, white women with white women, you had black men with black men, um, black women with black women, white men with white men, segregated, if you were, had the privilege to be in a cell. Would you, if you can go back, would you do it all over again the exact same way? I would do it all over the exact same way. I have no regrets. I am very proud of each and every last person who has protested um, and continues to do so because the fight must go on. These young activists that you see here have not been the only ones on the front lines. Cincinnati's police chief, Elliot Isaac, has been out there as well, and he speaks with Curtis about balancing free speech and public safety when we return. Police officers here in Cincinnati and around the nation have been pushed to the limits in the wake of several days and nights of protests. They also are dealing with the reality of four cops facing charges. One is charged with second degree murder. And police officers everywhere are also asking the question of what would cause anyone to put a knee to the neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, only to hear George Floyd say, I can't breathe. It does seem like we've been here uh, many times before where we've seen protests in the streets. Um, what's different, though, about this one? In 2001, it was about events that happened here in Cincinnati, about the history exclusively about Cincinnati. We weren't seeing this play out across the country like we are right now. Um, and it was, it was, we didn't see as much 
diversity amongst the demonstrators that we see right now. So there is a very different dynamic right now. What about you, Lou? What, what's different? That it's national. Um, I wasn't on the department in 2001, but I was in the city. And being a licensed minister, they called ministers downtown, so I walked the streets. And I engaged a lot of, a lot of the protesters, a lot of the rioters. And, but it was localized. It was spread throughout the city, but it was localized. This thing has not only um, spread across the U.S., it's in other countries. So I, th I think that's the big difference. One of the early stories I did as a rookie reporter, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a 22-year-old by the name of Ernest Lacey. Walking down the street, he gets uh, arrested um, for, he was a suspect for a crime he didn't commit. But he ended up dying in police custody because the officer at the time put his knee on the back of this kid's neck. That was 1981. And I think what troubled me is that we're, this was, a, a, it's almost a mirror case of that. But both of you have expressed um, your outrage at what took place in Minnesota. Just address that. So much work and so much training has occurred in the law enforcement community around those type of things, around chokeholds, around uh, positional asphyxiation, that to see something like this still occur, it makes it that much more outrageous to see an officer place his knee on the neck of a person and to hear that person cry out that they can't breathe. It, it's, it's absolutely insane. Uh, here, you, we've been teaching our officers for two decades about this. We've had incidents in 2000 and 2003 that were related to uh, chokeholds, to positional asphyxiation. We teach our officers not to pile on a person to where they can't breathe. Once they're able to get that person secure, that they place them either in a sitting position or on their side so that they're able to breathe. For me, Curtis, as black men in America, we still have to prove to America that we're human. And when you apply enough pressure to push the oxygen out of someone's lungs, you don't view them as human. And I think there has to come a time in America where America faces the fact that racism is real, that is targeted African-American, in particular black men, and the effect that it's having on society. If we don't have George Floyd die on camera, we don't have protests across the country. I think you would say to folks, you have to understand the danger out there when the protesting is occurring. And, you know, sadly, some, some bad elements got into, if somebody pulls out a gun, heck, a gun was pointed at one of the security people who, who was with you were with, with us. So it, it was very real. I'm probably older than everyone in this room. So I was around during Dr. King and I witnessed the, the peaceful protests and the peaceful marches 
and the impact they had and the changes they brought. Violence begets violence. So we don't need the violent element. But the protests, I, I, I applaud them. I am glad that folks are getting fed up with what they see and want to bring about a change. And so through the protest becomes dialogue. And through dialogue, you, are, you would be able to bring about change. Change comes through, through changing legislation. And that comes through sitting down at the table and having hard conversations about issues that affect you in a negative way. And then coming up, coming up with solutions to, uh, to change those things. But protest is fine, but the violence, the violence needs to stop. I certainly applaud the protest, the peaceful protest. <laughs> There's clearly valid reason for that. How can anyone deny that? But what we're seeing is that there are other people that are involved, and I've talked to a number of, of folks that are out there, they see it, they recognize it, that have uh, interwoven themselves into some of the marches, and they are not there for Mr. George That's Floyd's right. family. That's right. They are not there for justice. They are not there to see reform. They are there to create chaos, destruction, and anarchy. Up next, our conversations continue with more voices pushing for justice. Next, we'll talk with local lawmakers, community leaders, and social activists. They give their perspective about navigating the road to change. There are many in our community who have been out there calling for justice, and it is not limited to just police reform. People are in turmoil across the world because Minnesota, the people in Minnesota, and 99% of the time, they're non-people of color, non-African-American who have the power to make the change. We didn't get the change to do the collaborative through federal court or being in the streets. You know what actually got us to the table? It was the sanction and the boycott. It was shutting down the city for three years. And when, once we hit the pockets, when we stopped the money from flowing, somebody said, and it wasn't the elected officials, what do they really want? So I think it's time that people of non-color take their rightful place, fix the isms that are in everything. We can go from qualified immunity from the national to locally not doing what we agreed to do just two years ago. We paid $350,000 for a refresh. The community has been at the table. We still have a FOP president that refuses to sit at the table with the people who created something that's made this city better. They need to fix it, not us. The unheard are speaking out saying, this is wrong, this is unjust. Yes, it is about the death of a young man by the arms of police, but it is a bigger symptomatic factor of the structures and systems that must be broken. And we all together are accountable and responsible for pushing forth the policies and putting the pressure on our elected officials, our leaders, to ensure that change happens so that there is better equity it's not even better equity that we all have the right to live a free life in this country without racism being the factor that causes us to see disproportionate numbers of COVID-19, disproportionate numbers of us being killed, or disproportionate numbers of the economic poverty that we all see across this country. And so now is the time. We're all coming together. We're looking to 
have everybody at the table. It's, it's a, a time when there are, are white people and black people and men, women, and people of all, all backgrounds are starting to understand that the issues around black lives mattering and black future mattering um, are really an issue we all care about. Uh, and it's something that needs to be fixed for everybody and with everybody. Uh, and that's, that's something that gives me hope. Um, because at the end of the day, white supremacy is something that white people are going to have to unravel, and we, we, have to, we have to be able to come to the table to do that. I'm optimistic too, Curtis. I really believe in people. I believe in our ability to, to change the system, and that's what we have to do. Um, you look at um, you know, black folks being arrested at 10 times the rate of white people. Um, there are more African Americans under the criminal justice system than there were enslaved in 1850. Something's wrong with that. Driving while black is really an issue. Um, there have been articles and studies done in Cincinnati. Uh, the young lady who was here earlier, Nature, told me she's lived in Cincinnati for six years. She's been pulled over 12 times. Something is wrong with that. And the whole thing about giving a talk to our kids about you know how you deal with that, how you stay alive when, when you're pulled over. We have to do that, but we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to live in fear. Our children shouldn't have to live in fear. Are we optimistic? Um, we want to be optimistic. Whether we should be or not, um, time will tell, right? And I think the answer right now kind of has to be, we don't know. The two things that do give me some encouragement is while Cincinnati is not where we need to be, I just want to say that clearly, we are not where we need to be. We're also not where we were, right? That we have a lot of progress to make, but there are cities around the country that didn't grapple with things in the way that we did coming out of 2001 and beyond. So we're on our way, but we're not there. Um, the second thing, going back to comments several of, of the distinguished members of this panel have made, is I think white people, um, of which I am one, are very belatedly coming to understand that it is our uh, insufficient outrage and our insufficient anger that is allowing for the continued mistreatment and killing of black people in America. And I think that again, this is all belatedly, uh, but white people need to do some serious soul searching and say, am I doing enough? I think the answer is no. And I hope that one of the things that's different about this moment is that recognition and the action that will come from that recognition. When we start looking at how civil rights change from decade to decade, but human rights remain the same, at one time or another, they didn't even think a black person was human, that we were subhuman. And so I've always been out there fighting for the class. I've been out there fighting for humanity. You can't treat a human like you treated George Floyd. From civil rights lions to young cubs, Alexis is back with some final thoughts from our civil rights leaders of the future. Hi there and welcome back. As more human rights entities like the NAACP and the student and community groups continue to refine their list of demands, the focus is still on the future, a future that young leaders say is very bright. I want to leave with final thoughts from all of you. HD, being a black man in Cincinnati, being born and raised here, what's your final thoughts of what you would like to see moving forward? I would like to see, I would like to see people not 
I would like to see people mobilize. I would like to see people stand up. And I would like to see more leaders arise from this. Um, it seems that right now we're at a time where it's prime to birth a lot of new leaders and we can implement a lot of new strategies. So I would like to see just the people stand up and rise to the occasion and come up with some new strategies that can actually move us forward in the long term rather than short-term solutions that'll have us right back here. What's your big takeaway? If you only got a chance to say one thing, I mean, we have the chief here, we have so many people here who are listening to you. What's your one thing that you would like to leave? Sure, um, I'm just gonna say this mainly. Uh, young people, like, look at my face. Um, I'm just like y'all. A lot of you all are scared to speak up right now. I'm telling you not to. I'm putting myself out there just to let you know I'm here for everybody. Like, I'm gonna do what I can to like, make sure everyone's heard. Make, do what I can for change. Period, like, there's nothing to worry about. Do not live in fear, we will get through this. I will say I would really, just my big takeaway is to get our officers involved in the communities. I, just to make us feel, you're there to protect us. Um, I know a lot of us feel like, who do we call when the people who are supposed to protect us are against us? Um, our city leaders, and it goes beyond our city leaders, our state representatives, um, getting out and voting, that is a very big thing. Um, and just facing, me facing my trauma and the things that I've gone through in the past five days, um, just continue to fight and just continue to push on um, and just, just keep going, don't stop. We see, we've seen so many people, black and not black, out here asking for the same demands. Where do we go from here? It's hard to boil it down to one thing, but I guess the one thing I would have to say is that voting is important, yes. Voting is very important. That's how we make systemic change. But also talk to your, if you have white privilege, use it. Talk to your white friends and family. Have those hard conversations. Organize, show up, join uh, Mass Action for Black Liberation, the Cincinnati Homeless Coalition. There are multiple organizations that want to sustain and want to create real change. And in order to do that, which I think we all want that, is to keep this movement alive and support each other. Yeah, it's so good that we hear from more voices, as many voices as we as we can. And you know what was interesting? The chief said, you know, some of the young people that you talked to, mm -hmm. you know, they were very small if if they were even born Absolutely. in 2001. Huh? And yet they still are so passionate about yeah. it. This is a human issue. It is. Well, thanks for joining us for this edition of Let's Talk Sensi. We want to hear from you. Email us all of your ideas at ltc at wlwt.com. And of course, make sure that you stay encouraged.